Oh, we're in for a treat today. We're going to have a conversation with a alcoholic compulsive gambler, Terry L. Welcome again to another episode of the 1% in Recovery podcast, where we say recovery is beautiful. <laughs> your EQ is your IQ. Now out is the Recovery Growth Scorecard. It's free, but it's using metrics. Businesses use metrics to evaluate business performance. Why doesn't recovery? Well, now we do. Just an easy way to start healing, detoxing, and just doing things on a daily basis. It's free. Either go to the website, www.lifeiswonderful.love, L-O-V-E, or email me, Hugo V, at lifeiswonderful.love. Today, we have a opportunity to talk about both gambling and alcohol, addiction, recovery, family. How are you doing today, Terry? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. <laughs> All right. First off, we always like to ask, uh, tell one thing that you love. Anything that you... Think? Well, sure. What I love is uh, seeing young men like yourself and new men come into these programs and return to a normal way of living and thinking and becoming effective uh, citizens in the community, good dads, good employees. And because I went through the same thing and I know what the route is that they go through. And when they become productive, productive, it gives me a lot of joy, true joy. Uh, excellent. All right. We like to just jump in, not waste any time. We're going to go into question number one. Now, what do you see in terms of addiction? You know, everyone talks about fentanyl and about the over 100,000 people dying of OD, but now gambling is being pushed every which way by major sports leagues, governments. They all got their hand out, the advertisers. No one can get enough about gambling. Someone who's been around and has seen a lot with gambling, with alcohol, with a family, you know, in different cities, what are you currently seeing in terms of two things? One, addiction as a whole, do you think it's increasing? as well as what do you see with this whole new gambling environment? Well, I see it from two perspectives. One, going to a lot of meetings for alcoholics. I go to meetings for gamblers as well, not quite as many because there's not as many meetings. But the meetings are growing dramatically at both places, gambling and alcohol. So it means that there's more addicts out there and there's more availability for uh, gambling for sure. I mean, Let's face it, with the advent of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and Robinhood trading advertised on the television every moment of the day, then they've got DraftKings coming on and the different sport activities that allow you to bet, as we were talking earlier, live inside the game, whether we can make a first down on this series or not. The uh, amount of money being lost, I would say, has to increase dramatically amongst the whole universe of gamblers. I think that's probably accelerating the uh, degree of uh, of addiction. And it's being advertised, even young kids. You know, I had a mother-in-law used to give my kids uh, scratch-off tickets for their birthday. And I told her a couple times, you know, I, I'll go to a program that w where we don't gamble. It would be better if you don't uh, put those in the hands of my children because this thing's hereditary. Of course, she didn't hear me about that. And I'm fortunate that nobody in my family picked that up. Primarily because I was an example of not drinking and not gambling. 
Right. But that's the thing. People don't realize all that subconscious stuff, whether it's a, it starts off innocently, whether it's a fantasy football team in high school or a scratch yep. off. And then someone just gets that bug, like especially if they you know how it is, they get that early win. And all of a sudden their brain starts thinking differently. Why do I need to go to school? Why do I need to work? I can I already have this easy thing. I can do this on my phone. Yeah. And that's the that's actually the hook and that's actually the the trap. Yeah. What are you seeing about the whole thing with the mobile phones? Well, I'll be honest with you, I'm not that dialed in to gambling because I don't gamble anymore, but a lot of the people that come in talk about placing not only bets on the phones, but they they're they're trading uh, currencies, they're trading all kinds of things that can get them in trouble. So that's a, just another technology that came along. It was like putting gasoline on the fire, compulsive gambling. But uh, I, I, I'm glad that those kinds of betting weren't around when I was a young man because I got that early win, a big early win, two of them in a row at around the age of 19 or 20, and that set the hook on me. I went from being a somewhat controlled gambler to a totally out-of-control gambler who would lose everything he had access to within hours. So that's the way the uh, – it's like wildfire that the addiction spreads. Right, because that's that hook. That's why they're always saying, okay, bet $5, yeah. we'll give you $200 free play or in-house betting. The, the casinos already know how to hook, and they know that that's that, that dangerous way. Just get, just get – well, they'll give away $200, $500, $1,000 because they know they're going to get it back. Yeah. And with the advent of this artificial intelligence, Lord only knows what kind of future games there may be to play on that are actually make-believe games, like horse races or who knows what, and they're going to be bringing more and more gamblers in via artificial intelligence, I believe. That reminds me of the people that came in during the sports. Well, I don't know if it was sports betting, but they claim it was sports betting during COVID, but it was like a ping-pong match in the Ukraine. Or it was some badminton game in Korea. He goes, it's not like when we were betting because we you know we did baseball, basketball, football. It's like you could turn on ESPN and check: did these yeah. actual were these actually real people? Were this actually real games, or was it just uh, they could let a few people win and took most of the people as L's? Yeah, yeah. When I was gambling, I only wanted to gamble on sports that I thought I knew something about. I'd never played a minute on skates and hockey. Within three years, I was betting thousands on hockey games. One of the worst bets you could ever uh, make a wager on. All right, let's go into question two. Now, you've obviously been in your addictions in different cities. You've been in recovery in different cities. We're talking about Detroit, Philadelphia, Houston. Obviously, a long time in Houston. Now in Austin. Tell us just about what you see in recovery and the beauty in recovery, you know, that in different cities, as well as, you know, where, I mean, it, it's almost like it's always there that it's available. What do you see in recovery in just different places? Well, first of all, I started off in Detroit in 1976, and there was very limited Gamblers Anonymous meetings there. So I uh, got introduced to the GA community in Detroit. And as time has gone by, I moved to uh, Houston rather quickly. Uh, I moved here in 79, 80. It was because of gambling, actually, it run me out of town. I was in debt to some bookies and lost a couple of good jobs. But coming to Houston, there was many more meetings available for Gamblers Anonymous. And then I got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's hundreds, if not probably close to 5,000 meetings here in Houston, so they say, per week. So there's a lot of availability for recovery. And I think that 
recovery has matured over time and that the participants realize you really need to work the steps, not just not gamble or just not drink and talk about it. You really need to go through some character change and some sort of a spiritual transition. You need to have that psychic change that you're not thinking about drinking, you're not thinking about gambling, and it goes away once you get the psychic change. But you can't get that psychic change without getting into the steps. And that's where the change comes for me. It came somewhere around the fourth and fifth step is where I got that psychic change that I felt like I never wanted to go back to that. It didn't bother me anymore, and I didn't even think about that. But until I'd worked that cathartic process of coughing up my guts in a fourth step and then giving it away in a fifth step, uh, I never had much success in not gambling, stopping gambling, staying stopped. So I think that uh, there's a ma- quite a maturity in the rooms of both GA and AA around the country. Yeah, because you even talk about, you know, the original big book, you know, they always talk about the mental obsession and the physical cravings. But there's also because it's in the DSM, the American Psychiatric Association, you know, that's an emotional disease. I see it also almost like a mental obsession, physical craving with gambling, even though that there's no substance involved. Do you see that as well? Because I, I just I, I'm just around it. And I know mine was more emotional, but mm-hmm. I do understand that other people struggle because for some it is a real physical thing or a very mental thing. And I understand what you're talking about. Yeah, you got to do you got to do work, emotional work, step work, something. You, otherwise, you're never you're always going to have that in the back of your mind. Well, I don't know about others, but for me, when I was thinking about gambling and in that action, I think there was a chemical or some sort of endorphin or substance that was released in the brain that gave me that high feeling. I mean, I felt just as high as, you know, being on alcohol or drugs when I was gambling. And then when it was over, it was a tremendous letdown. You know, you hit bottom, you're just depressed, depressed, you're out of energy. You couldn't get the energy to move forward to try to work, get your money back through regular work. All you could think about was another scheme to manipulate and get some more money and make another bet. Right. Like I always said, it's like a lot of people don't know, you know, when you come into meetings for gambling, you know, they ask 20 questions and there's that one question that says, when you lost, did you immediately want to go back to gamble again? I said yes. And I always know that the true compulsive gambler always answers yes to that question. Well, I don't know if it was immediately, but I maybe took a five or 10 minute break where I was really beat down so damn bad I was uh, unable to think and then a few minutes later the next thing you're thinking about is how how am i going to get even right and the only way the only way you can do it is gambling not any other way that's that's the insanity the only you know gambling has kicked your ass but somehow gambling is the only way out (laughs) yeah it, it was both the answer and the scourge it was well let's jump into question three you're the father of four daughters And now, even though now they're adults, but you see a lot, you know, they're talking a lot about social media, but I think this has been going on throughout the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, that girls in high school, teenage years, more so than boys, suffer from higher anxiety, levels of higher anxiety, levels of higher depression, you know, always trying to fit in. Was it difficult, number one, as a father to try to manage or try to make sure that they weren't going to kind of get too into anxiety or social pressures? Or 
how well, you know, did everything, I know everything turned out well, but I'm sure that was a concern of yours. Because, or, you know, or share what, what you think can help current dads with daughters in high school. Yeah, well, I can give you a couple perspectives on that. I just came back from a conference. It was up at Lake Brownwood, Texas. It was for alcoholics. But a couple of men sitting at my table at dinner one day were talking about their teenage daughters and the pressures they were having from bullying and and the uh, social media. And one of the men who claimed to have some really good success with his daughter was that they limited her access to social media to maybe 30 minutes a day. And they kept control of the devices at home and they said her grades from the eighth grade going into high school uh, increased dramatically because they'd just gotten a hold of the technique on how to manage her access to the social media. Fortunately for me, I wasn't bringing kids up when the social media was uh, proliferating. It was cell phones were coming into existence. And of course, they all wanted to have a cell phone. And my wife and I laid a rule down. None of them could have a cell phone until they were 16, believe it or not. And it worked out fine in my family because none of the older sisters had a phone until I got to be 16. And the other thing was my kids weren't really very social. I had their nose on the grindstone of playing sports for girls. And they all played competitive soccer. They played softball. They were swimmers, cross-country runners, those kind of things that are good, healthy activities that kept them out of the thought process of having to be accepted by their peers. And another good thing is our girls all went to uh, Catholic all-girls schools uh, for high school, and that helped keep their mind off the boys, for the most part. Not entirely, but for the most part. No, I know. I do think that does help. I mean, because you know, you know, my story is, I tell everyone, I went to Strake Jesuit and all-boys Catholic high school here in in Houston. And yeah, when you're, when you're in those types of schools, throw so much homework at you that between school practice and homework, you barely have time to sleep five hours and you're so exhausted that there isn't a lot of other that is time. And I do think that, yeah, that's a get them involved in some type of extracurricular because let's yeah. say they may be more musically inclined. I do think that that is one way. And I think those are great tips, either minimize, it, you know, the social media. Of course, they're going to be, you know, you see it all along, you know, how kids almost feel like it's their oxygen. Yeah. You take their phone away, it's like an oxygen tank, and it's like they're about to kill you. You can almost do anything else. Take the car keys away, do that, but don't take the phone away. Well, I'll tell you, I wouldn't be giving you the total story if I really didn't confess that uh, I had a drill sergeant for a wife when it came to raising the girls, especially in their teenage years. And the reason I had that wife over that term is that I got into GA and I got into AA, and I worked the steps, and I brought her in a little bit on the gammon on, and now she's a uh, real Alan on, you know, she, she goes all the time. And if I hadn't had her there, if my marriage would have blowed up, I'm not sure what the girls would have wound up doing. But funny thing is they all got married. They, they took a job. They're all still in the same job, multiple years. They paid off their college debts and they seem to be harmonious uh, with their husbands. And I think a lot of that is from their observation of their parents. And I think they all have what we would call good pickers or good selection strategies for who they were going to marry. And I think they get that from the, the mom and dad that they live with. Because uh, if you have an absentee dad, the, the odds of these girls growing up and being successful in school and in marriage is not good at all. We see it all the time out here. In and it doesn't matter about money because, you no. know, there can be a, a, a couple. They could still be married. They could still have lots of money. Yeah. But if they're one or both are absent, the child feels it. 
And then, you know, they realize I don't want to be like my mom and dad, but they, they have good role models. Then they, they really, they, I think, I think emotion, number one, it, it just helps their number self-esteem as well as it really just empowers them emotionally not to get undone because they know that they can come home and things will be able, there's a safe place to go. Yeah. And they feel unloved and unvaluable if they don't have both parents, especially giving them direction. They may not like it, but they know they're important enough for us to stand up there and, and give them direction as to what they need to do. Because if there's no one at home to oversee them and they have plenty of money, uh, they feel unloved. They got money, but they're into some bad habits that leads them into addiction. So uh, we were just lucky, again, to have both parents at home and uh, keep them uh, actively involved in those athletics. And you know what? For me, in terms of staying abstinent and sober, my involvement in those uh, 19 years straight, I was a soccer and uh, softball coach. And some years I had two and three teams that I was coaching. So that kept me doing something that made me feel good and productive for the family and the community. So that helped me mature a little bit too. But you're also a referee too. Oh yeah. I got out of that as soon as I could. <laughs> That's a no-win situation. <laughs> that is. Okay, just we finished the three questions. You any you have one last tip or gem you want to share with the audience? Well, the only gem I can share is uh if you feel like you've got any kind of problem whether it be an addiction or not, the 12 steps are a solution to any problem. There's not been any problem in my life that I've had that I didn't solve. I had marital problems. I had physical problems. I had employment problems. And I had uh, legal problems at one time. And I've worked them out with other men in these programs that have had similar experience that led me through the steps to come up with good solutions rather than something like divorce, for example. So. Yeah, work those steps if you're in a program. If you're not in a program, find a program to get involved with. I agree. Like I said, your EQ is your IQ. You've got to do this emotional work. So with that, we are going to conclude this episode of the 1% in Recovery podcast.